And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at bestinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. And I know you're looking. I know you're listening. Of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? What else you got to do, right? I mean, there's nothing else going on. There's not balloons floating in the sky or anything like that. You are here listening and hopefully learning some things about the issue of life and abortion. Today, I have a lot to talk about. Today, we're going to start with the governor's state of the state address. So the governor's state of the state address happened last week. Some big news came out of that uh, that address. Some Some major, major propositions, some major proposals were made concerning life, concerning uh, pregnancy centers specifically, uh, and excited to share that news with you. Uh, also want to look at, there's a piece <clears throat> that, I, that I came across the other day, and it's an interesting perspective. And I'm not, when, when we get into it here in a second, I'm not saying that I agree with, with everything, but there is a movement uh, from conservatives, from pro-lifers, uh, to look at doing some things differently. Uh, when it comes to government spending, when it comes to government involvement uh, in uh, in pregnancy and in delivery and, and all these things. And I think it's it's worth having the conversation. Now, I know that some people are like immediately we're, you know, hey, that's government funding. We don't want to we don't want to take any of that. We don't want to uh, get connected to that. But I do think in a post row America, there's some conversations to be had that celebrate family that allow for families to flourish. And so there, there's been some proposals from different folks, conservatives that have, that have tried to do that. Uh, and I do think there needs to be a robust conversation around pro-life initiatives that, that uh, include a number of things. But one of those things being, if you are pro-life, uh, the pro-lifers should be leading the way when it comes to being pro-family. And then I'm going to end the show today by talking about a Yale professor and some really shocking things that, that he has said uh, in, in moving forward with life and the issue of abortion. And we'll get into that uh, in a second. But again, like I said, I want to start, I want to start with Tennessee, my state. Uh, and this is from the AP. And there's a purpose. I'm reading it from the AP because I want you to see how the secular uh, journalist, AP would say they're objective. Okay, so this is this is what an objective article is supposed to look like. Not supposed to, but this is what an objective article looks like in 2023 America. Okay, so I'm going to as I read through it, I'm going to point some things out to you that this is not objective. This is full on subjective. This is full on that they're pushing a narrative. They're pushing an agenda the way they label things, the way they talk about things, because abortion is a golden calf. And so if a state dare try to try to help or or make way for women to choose life, they're going to go after them, and they're going to use language that they claim is objective, but it's not objective. And I'm going to point that out to you. So this is from the AP in Nashville. says this, brushing aside calls to tweak One of the strictest abortion bans in the United States, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee on Monday last week unveiled plans to funnel tens of millions of taxpayer dollars to, listen, anti-abortion centers, as he declared the state 
had a, quote, moral obligation to support families. Notice, AP calling pregnancy centers anti-abortion. Now, they don't call Planned Parenthood pro-abortion, right? They don't do that. But pregnancy centers, we're going to label y'all anti-abortion. There's a purpose for that. And it's like I've talked about on here over and over and over. They want to paint us and characterize us for the things that we are against. Right? So they want to say things like they're anti-life. They're anti-abortion. They're not pro-life. They're anti-abortion. Lee, a Republican, said he wants to create a hundred million dollar grant program for nonprofits commonly known as, quote, crisis pregnancy centers, end quote. If approved, Tennessee would become one of the top spending states on such organizations known for dissuading people from getting an abortion. Now, listen to how they worded that. What are, pregnancies no, what are pregnancy centers known for in the mind of this AP writer? Pregnancy centers are known for what they're against, which is abortion. So, so they would say these pregnancy centers are going to receive these, these funds, and they're known for persuading people against abortion. No, instead of what they should have said is pregnancy centers are known for providing care and service at no cost to a patient. They're known for providing pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. Our center in Knoxville is known for providing pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, STD testing and treatment, well-woman care, parenting education, mentoring, dad's class for moms and our dad's class for dads, mom's class for moms, material assistance. That's what we're known for. If you asked our patients, hey, what, what are they known for? They wouldn't say they're known for being against abortion. That, they wouldn't say that. But see, this is what they're, they're wanting to paint this picture because they're wanting to make it out like the governor is handing $100 million to pregnancy centers that are against everything we stand for. That, that's, the, that's the mantra. That's the mindset. That's the narrative that they're pushing. However, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, many Republicans have gone on the defensive about their abortion bans, including by offering to expand government programs aimed at women and families. Lee, for example, is focusing on pregnant mothers and parents, on Medicaid and state employees who have newborns. The crisis pregnancy centers Lee is banking on, meanwhile, have shifted to touting that they offer prenatal, prenatal, uh, and post-birth classes. The governor made the announcement during his annual state of the state address. Now, hold on, I want to stop for a second. Listen to what they said. The crisis pregnancy centers Lee is banking on, meanwhile, have shifted to touting that they offer prenatal and post-birth classes. There's been no shift. This is literally what we've been doing since our inception. But we, you know, we got to work this narrative in. You know, the, the pregnancy centers doing what they do. They are just deceiving people and manipulating people. And they've now shifted to what they do. No, we're not shifting. This is what we've always done. We've always provided these services. We've always done this well. The article goes further. The governor made the announcement during his annual State of the State address in front of the Republican-dominated legislature. The speech outlined his top priorities over the upcoming months, ranging from spending an additional $125 million on teacher pay raises, improving the state's transportation system, and efforts to clean up toxic waste on industrial sites. Yet Lee dedicated a significant amount of time explaining how and why 
he would support families after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion. Now, look, I watched the entire speech, and I am grateful. I'm grateful that, that Governor Lee spent a, a, a little bit of time on life and the issues of life and surrounding families. But to argue that he spent a significant amount of time more than, than the rest of the, the objects that they just miss, mentioned is, is laughable. I watched the entire thing. And he spent a few minutes talking about life and the Medicaid expanding and, and, you know, providing, uh, tin care, providing diapers for moms up for their babies up to two years old. Like all of these things. But it wasn't, I wouldn't say a significant amount of time, but they, again, they're pushing a narrative. They're hoping you didn't watch the state of the state. So they're going to say, you know, he said he was going to do this with transportation. He said he was going to do this for teachers. But man, you know, over half the speech was about the family. That's not true. It's not true. Go watch it. Lee has stood firm against inserting, inserting exceptions to Tennessee's abortion ban. But the issue is split even top-level Republicans with House Speaker Cameron Sexton saying he, the law needs to change. I mean, we've talked about this over and over uh, let's see, quote, pro-life is much more than defending the lives of the unborn, Lee said, as protesters shouted above him about health care in the gallery. This is not a matter of politics. This is about human dignity. Amid the shouts, Lee quipped, civility is not weakness. In a nod to his inauguration speech from two weeks prior, where he criticized those who, quote, thrive on toxic incivility and divisiveness, end quote. The line prompted the loudest standing ovation from Republican lawmakers, cabinet members, and other leaders inside the Tennessee House chamber. I watched that. It wasn't just Republican lawmakers that, that stood and clapped when he said that. See, this is how they are hoping you didn't watch the State of the State Address, because most people didn't watch the State of the State Address. I watched it. When, when Governor Lee said what he said, and when he said civility is not weakness, it's actually strength. That is what he said. The entire chamber rose to their feet and applauded. That means Democrats and Republicans stood in unison applauding that statement. But this article doesn't tell you that Democrats stood. It tells you that the cabinet members stood and the Republicans stood. Now, why do they say that? Because they don't want you to think that both sides agree with that statement. We can have a healthy debate about the policy specifics, but we can also agree that America is rooted in a commitment to human dignity. Lee later said there was a significant shift in this country last year when it comes to pro protecting the lives of the unborn. We now have all or we now all have an opportunity and moral obligation to support strong Tennessee families. Lee's comments sparked ire from Democratic lawmakers who argued the governor was ignoring the concerns of women who no longer have access to abortion services in Tennessee. Of course, that's what they believed. Along with creating a $100 million grant fund for pregnancy centers, Lee also proposed expanding paid parental leave for state employees and widening the Medicaid eligibility for pregnant women and parents. His administration also plans to ask the federal government to cover the cost of diapers for Medicaid recipients for two years. If approved, Tennessee will be the first Medicaid program in the nation to implement this kind of support. That's pro-life. That's pro-family, Lee said. Now, now, just on that, on that comment, who, who would possibly be against doing what Governor Lee wants to do there? 
See, this is, this is what governing looks like. Because when Democrats say, you don't care about baby once they're born, and our governor says, matter of fact, we're going to provide diapers for any mom that's on ten care for their baby up to two years old. So what, what were you saying? You don't care about moms after baby's born. Well, actually, we're going to make it so that, that moms can have parental leave, longer parental leave if they're a state employee. So, so what were you saying? Well, you don't care about taking care of these young ladies that, that are pregnant. Well, actually, we're going to create a $100 million grant program for the pregnancy centers that are serving these moms. So, so what, what were you saying again? You see, this is what governing looks like. The governor's speech did not include specific details about the paid parental leave proposal for state employees. Uh, this year, Lee's second pitch at expanding paid family leave was met with some enthusiasm, but his pitch for a $100 million grant for crisis pregnancy centers received much more applause. In 2021, Tennessee lawmakers allocated money for several ultrasound machines to be placed in pregnancy centers. The website, notice here, all throughout this article, they're labeling us crisis pregnancy centers. Here we have a slip-up. We have a little bit of a slip-up by the editor. They, they, they didn't include crisis. See, they want to paint us as these little mom-and-pop, podunk, crisis pregnancy centers. In reality, we're, we're much, much more sophisticated than that. And, and here in this article, you have a little slip-up. All throughout the article, they're saying crisis pregnancy centers. And here in this moment, they said Pregnancy centers without the crisis part. Oh, that, that's a little mistake. The website of one center includes a disclaimer stating that any information provided is an educational service and should not be relied on as a substitute for professional and medical advice. That, that, look, they're going to pull out all they want to pull out. The reality is, at Hope, I, that's what I, I can speak to Hope. We have three nurse practitioners on staff, three nurses on staff, fully medical. Patients come in, they're meeting with a medical professional. That's just the reality. An Associated Press tally based on state budget figures reveals that nearly $89 million was allocated to such centers across about a dozen states during the 21 and 22 fiscal year. A decade ago, the annual funding for the programs hovered around $17 million in about eight states. Now, they're, they're, they're focusing on that. And I've talked about that article before in the past. There, the $89 million across the country went to pregnancy centers around the country. Planned Parenthood receives half a billion dollars from tax dollars every single year. Planned Parenthood alone receives half a billion. And this article is going, can you believe pregnancy centers receive all that money, $89 million across the country. Folks, this is why it's important to read through these articles. It's why it's important to call out the nonsense. And, and bring some clarity to what is happening. We'll be back. And that's Dave Matthews. Right? You know, if you listen to that song, the beginning of it, when he comes in singing, it sounds like the old dial-up internet. Listen. Yeah. There you go. Look, you're not getting this type of... This type of uh, news anywhere else. I'm telling you. Uh, but every time I hear that song, I think of dial-up internet. And I'm sure Dave Matthews is like, shut up. I'm, I'm doing my, my thing. But that's what I think about. Look, as, as I finish up what, what I talked about in the first segment, 
What Governor Lee is doing is leading the way. What Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida is leading the way of this kind of this new mindset of pro-family, pro-life approach. So Governor DeSantis is, is saying, hey, we're going to make permanent uh, tax-free on baby items, cribs, car seats, and, and diapers and the like. Governor Lee is saying, we're going we're gonna to fund in a major way organizations that are helping moms in difficult circumstances. We're going to fund in a major way through TenCare and other means uh, to help moms receive diapers that they need for their children. We're going to, we're going to fund in a major way to provide pre, uh, a parental leave for state employees. All of these things are governing in a way that says we believe in family, we believe in moms, we believe in dads, and we're going to do everything we can, not just with our partners, but with our money to allow for families to flourish. And see, what's going to happen is, is there's going to be some on the right and some on the left that don't like that. Now, some on the right are going to say, well, you're doing that, and, and we don't think government funding should be spent on those things. And then you're going to have those on the left saying, well, you can't do that. But again, the, the left have always argued, we don't care about baby after they're born. And as we make these shifts and these changes, legislatively and from a budget perspective, they're not going to be able to make that argument anymore. Now, their argument was, was, a, uh, was a wrong-headed argument in the, in the first place because we all know that we care deeply about baby after the born and the family and all the like. But, but now it's even going to be more so wrong-headed because we're, we're doing something. We're governing in a way that are allowing families to flourish. Now, I don't have all the details on what that grant program is going to look like for pregnancy centers across the state. I will say that the language that I have seen says specifically it is designed to directly uh, distribute funds to pregnancy centers statewide, which I love that language. And so... I have a meeting this week to get more details on that with the governor's office. And, and as soon as I have more details, I will share them with you. But all that to say that these are very positive things. I heard from people all over the country after the state of the state address. Saying this is the direction that we need to go. It's the same thing that I did last week when I highlighted what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, because it's the direction we need to go. And, and we need to understand that, and we need to fight for those things and advocate for those things. In light of that thinking, there, there's a piece over at the New York Times that, that's entitled, In Post-Row World, These Conservatives Embrace a New Kind of Welfare. Now, that headline probably makes you a little uneasy, and you're like, what are they talking about? What are they meeting? And again, this is from the New York Times, so their wording of some things that, you know we're not going to agree with. But I wanted to go through this piece because I want you to see kind of a new way of thinking when it comes to governing. That's what we're seeing in Florida. We're seeing in Tennessee, Louisiana, and some other places. A new way of thinking when it comes to allowing families and helping families to flourish. So this piece says this, sending cash to parents with few strings attached, expanding Medicaid, providing child care subsidies to families earning six figures. The ideas may sound like a part of a progressive platform, but... They are from an influential group of conservative intellectuals with a direct line to elected politicians. They hope to represent the future of a post-Trump Republican Party. If only, they say, their fellow travelers would abandon 
Listen to this. Again, this is going to make you uneasy. Reagan economics once and for all. So, so again, I, I said I'm going to read this piece. I'm going to highlight things that I probably agree with, some things that I don't necessarily agree with, but some conversations, robust conversations that need to happen from pro-family conservatives. These conservatives generally oppose abortion rights. Now, again, listen how they word that. Instead of saying these conservatives are for the life of every human, they have to say they're against something and, and they're against abortion what? Rights. Even though there are no rights to abortion, Supreme Court said as much. But again, this is the language that they choose to continue to use. They're eager to promote marriage, worried about the nation's declining fertility rate, and often resist the trans rights movement. Again, what rights? But I digress. But they also acknowledge that with abortion now illegal or tightly restricted in half the states, more babies will be born to parents struggling to pay for the basics, rent, health care, groceries, and child care, when prices are high and child care slots are scarce. A full-spectrum family policy has to be about encouraging and supporting people in getting married and starting families, said Orrin Cass, executive director of the American Compass Think Tank. It has to be pro-life, but also supportive of those families as they are trying to raise kids in an economic environment where that has become a lot harder to do. The idea of spending heavily on family benefits remains an outlier within the Republican Party, which only recently rejected Democrats' attempts to extend pandemic-era child tax credits. But a number of conservative members of Congress have embraced new benefits for parents, including Mr. Cass's former boss, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, as well as the Senators Marco Rubio of Florida, Josh Hawley of Missouri, and J.D. Vance of Ohio. Now, I want to I highlight something here. So some of you heard me say Mitt Romney, and you're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. He's talking about O'Rhino Mitt, and if Mitt wants it, then obviously it's a progressive you know, nonsense. Now, some of you are going, what are you talking about? Love Mitt Romney. I'm fine with that. But it's the other people I want to highlight. Senators Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley of Missouri, and J.D. Vance of Ohio. Josh Hawley of Missouri is an amazing elected official, super ultra-conservative on a host of issues. J.D. Vance, he wrote Hillbilly Elegy. If you, I think I've talked about that a couple years ago. Great book about his upbringing in Appalachia. And J.D. Vance is an attorney, ran for office, highly contested race. He ended up winning. The, the left cannot stand this dude. And, and, and so that group of folks, a Mitt Romney, a Marco Rubio, a Josh Hawley, and a J.D. Vance, that is a, look, that is not a bunch of rhinos. That is not a bunch of kind of, you know, liberals that have an R beside their name. These are legitimate conservatives. Even if some of you are like, well, don't, don't include Mitt Romney in that, in that group. Okay. Rubio, Hawley, and J.D. Vance, legitimate conservatives, legitimate pro-lifers. I, I've said this before. No one that I've heard running for a high office has articulated the, the position of life like Marco Rubio. No one. And they also know coming out in front of this and saying we're going to be pro-family and we're going to put our money where our mouth is, is, is not, you know, kind of going with the, with the wind of culture. This is going against the grain of their own party. It's going against the grain in, in some of uh, the left and what, what's happening in D.C. But they're boldly saying we got to do these things and step up.
And in President Biden's State of the Union address on Tuesday, he called on Republicans to join him in providing families with child care, paid leave, child tax credit, and affordable housing. Now, Mr. Cass and conservative allies are hoping to shape ideas for the 2024 Republican presidential primary and beyond, targeting ambitious governors who have emphasized making their states family-friendly, such as Ron DeSantis of Florida, Kristi Noem of South Dakota, and Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. A key priority for this new network of assertive thinkers is for federal government to send parents cash monthly for each child, a sea change from decades of Republican thinking on family policy. And I don't have to go over. I'll, I'll put this article in the show notes. But, but I want you to understand, this is the direction that, that many are starting to say we need to go in. Now, are all their opinions the right ones? Maybe not. But what we're seeing with what Governor Lee's doing here in Tennessee, what DeSantis is doing in Florida, what Christy Nome is doing in the Dakotas, and, and what Yunkin is doing in Virginia, there's an opportunity with that coupled with J.D. Vance and Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, all of those things coming together to say, who is the pro-life, pro-family party? We have an opportunity in a post-row era to be that and govern well, to boldly create policy that's going to allow families to flourish. That doesn't go against our belief system. It's right in line with it. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue the conversation, these are things that that we're going to cover on this show moving forward quite a bit especially as we get into the, the Republican primaries that are coming up to, to kind of get an idea of, uh, of what messaging is going to be put forward. We already know that Donald Trump has announced he's running. Uh, Nikki Haley has announced she's running. Mike Pompeo is going to run. The question is, because I think on the surface, I don't think Nikki Haley, I don't think Mike Pompeo can beat Trump. The question is, who else is going to f- fill out the field? Is it, is it going to be a Glenn Youngkin from Virginia? I mean, I think everybody is pretty confident Governor DeSantis is going to put his name in the hat. And I think that is the match, DeSantis and Trump in the primary, and we'll see how that shakes out. But there's others that are going to kind of throw their hat in the ring, and there's going to be a lot of folks that are trying to shape what that platform looks like. There's going to be a move amongst conservative governors, pro-life governors, to push this. We've already seen it with DeSantis and Lee and Yunkin. And more are going to be added to that. Huckabee, Sanders in, uh, in Arkansas, I believe, will probably come alongside that as well. And so it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. But I do believe a robust conversation on family policy is needed. And, and some, some things need to happen within the pro-life movement to see that those would, that would fight for and advocate for our policies moving forward will will get elected and, and will at the very least be encouraged to run and we'll see how that works. Right now I want to shift another article in the New York Times which talks to kind of this this narrative. Now some would say this is just so extreme. This isn't this isn't a belief system that a lot of people hold, but the fact that it's being written about in the New York Times tells me it's it may not be an extreme position. There may be some people really trying to discuss this and we've already seen in Canada with doctor-assisted suicide and, 
and kind of going, not just going after terminally ill patients, but now folks that are dealing with depression and, and allowing that for minors. I mean, we're moving in a direction of folks saying we can take life for a number of different reasons. Somewhere, Dr. Kevorkian is saying, hey, I told you. But this piece in the New York Times is an interesting one. It says, his pronouncements could hardly sound more drastic. In interviews and public appearances, uh, an assistant professor of economics at Yale has taken on the question of how to deal with the burdens of Japan's rapidly aging society. I feel like the only solution is pretty clear, he said during an online news program in late 2021. He said this, quote, in the end, isn't mass suicide and a mass ritual disembowelment that was a code among dishonored samurai in the 19th century, isn't this the answer for the elderly? So this, this professor is calling for a mass suicide of the elderly. Elderly. And then when he was asked about the, uh, the ritual that he talked about that samurais used to perform, he described to a group of assembled students a scene from a 2019 horror film in which a Swedish cult sends one of its oldest members to commit suicide by jumping off a cliff. He said this, quote, whether that's a good thing or not, that's more difficult to question, more qu- a difficult question to answer. Dr. Uh, Narita told the questionnaire at, uh, as he scribbled notes. So if you think that's good, then maybe you can work hard toward creating a society like that. At other times, he has broached the topic of euthanasia, quote, the possibility of making it mandatory in the future he said in one interview, will come up in discussion. He's 37, this doctor, this professor, said that his statements had been taken out of context and that he was mainly addressing a growing effort to push the most senior people out of leadership positions in business and politics to make room for younger generations. Nevertheless, with his comments on euthanasia and Social Security, he has pushed the hottest button in Japan. While he virtually unknown... Uh, Even in academic circles in the U.S., his extreme positions have helped him gain hundreds of thousands of followers on social media in Japan among frustrated youths who believe their economic progress has been held back by an elderly society. Appearing frequently on Japanese online shows in T-shirts, hoodies, or casual jackets and wearing signature eyeglasses with one round and one square lens, uh, Dr. Neria... Narita leans into his Ivy League pedigree as he fosters a nerdy shock jock impression. He's among a few Japanese provocateurs who have found an eager audience by gleefully breaching social taboos. His Twitter bio says, The things you're told you're not allowed to say are usually true. Last month, several commentators discovered his remarks and began spreading them on social media during a panel discussion on a respected internet talk show with scholars and journalists. Uh, they describe his comments as hatred toward the vulnerable. A growing group of critics warned that Dr. Narita's popularity could unduly sway public policy and social norms. Given Japan's low birth rate and the highest public debt in the development world, policymakers increasingly worry about how to fund Japan's expanding pension obligations. The country is also grappling with growing numbers of older people who suffer from dementia or die alone. In written answers to emailed questions, Uh, He said he's primarily concerned with the phenomenon in Japan where the same tycoons continue to dominate the world of politics, traditional industries, and media entertainment journalism for many, many years. 
The phrases mass suicide and others were an abstract metaphor, he said. I should have been more careful about their potential negative connotations, he added. After some self-reflection, I stopped using the words last year. Think about that. An ethics professor from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he said this about it. He said, a better option for society to care for its aging with compassion and honor while also upholding the reproductive capacity of husband and wife at the epicenter of cultural productivity so as not to create demographic catastrophe, as the Genesis 1-2 creation ethic envisions. Look, this is a spiritual battle. We talked about this uh, in shows past. Now, this this professor is trying to, uh, you know, he's young, he's trying to uh, garner support from the younger demographics, the younger generations. We're seeing that across the board, not just in Japan, but in America and in conservative circles and progressive circles and in all those circles. We're seeing a thirst, a thirst for truth, for somebody to tell it like it is. Quit watering it down. Be honest with us. Say the hard things. But if you're growing up in a society that is aging, and and look, we've progressed so far in modern medicine that, that people are living longer, which means we have populations that are older. The answer to that is not killing them. Like, it's crazy that I even have to say that. The answer to that is not mass suicide. But see, we've we've created this, this culture that says, hey, what's mine is mine. You need to get out of the way. I mean, it, it, it very much is. The prodigal son. What did the prodigal son say before he left? He said, I'm tired of being here. I want what's mine now. Give me my inheritance now. And what happened? He got his inheritance and he went and blew it all. All the way to the point where he was feeding with the pigs and he thought, I'd rather go back and be a servant to my father. Even that would be better than what I'm dealing with now. You see, we live in this give me what's mine culture or I have a degree and I'm 22 years old and I deserve everything you've worked 50 years to achieve. That, that's nonsense. But see, we fed this to a culture. Because we we segregate the generations. So. So in a lot of families, you don't have interaction with a granddad. In a lot of families, you don't have generations interacting with each other. We have Sunday school groups that are what? Age segregated. And I get it. We want to be with people that are similar to us, that are in the same life stage. But but we've told a younger generation that, look, when you graduate with your degree, everything should be yours. And for some of these folks, they're looking at the elderly who have spent decades to achieve the the heights of success that they have achieved, to to get that home, to get that vehicle, to, to get that retirement. And a younger generation is saying, I want all of that, but I want it today at 22, 25 years old, 30 years old. 
And, and it's impossible. And so now you have some folks going, well, you know, you could achieve that. If only these old people would just die. Like that's, li- that's literally what he's saying. Is that the answer to an aging population to kill them off? Is that how we love and respect our elders? I hope it's not. I mean, you're seeing these issues in Japan. You're seeing these issues in China. China has spent decades telling moms that if you have more than one child, you're a bad mom. And then they raised the one-child policy to two-child policy. And then they, then they raised it again. And what they're finding is, hey, if we tell a generation, or generations plural, if we tell them that if they have multiple children, they'll be bad moms, they may listen to us. And when we say you can now have more than one child, they're not having more children. Because they've been told that that would make them a bad mom. See, this, we knew this was coming. And now they don't know what to do. And now you got a dude from Yale saying that the answer to Japan's problems are just kill the old people. Mass suicide. Walk them off a cliff. Nonsense. We'll be back. So I want to I point out to you, as we finish up, I want to point out to you a difference here. And, and I'm just going to... I'm just going to paint you a picture, and I'll let you decide whose efforts deserve support. So on one side, you have people saying, we, we, our population has grown to a point that's unsustainable. You have one side that says, we need to depopulate. You have one side that, that argues, in Canada, we need to have... Doctor-assisted suicide, euthanasia for the, the disabled. We need to have doctor-assisted suicide, euthanasia for the elderly, for those with terminal illnesses. And now we need to make it available for minors who are facing with depression and other things. We have one, one group of folks that are, that are arguing for the mass suicide and killing of the elderly in Japan. We have some folks that are saying we need to have rituals where we walk them off cliffs or where they disemboweled themselves like samurais uh, did back in the day. We have a segment of the population that says we need abortion on demand for any reason, no matter what, that a mom can't possibly have her baby or her dreams. She's going to have to pick one or the other, and, and we, we sure do hope she picks her dreams because we need her in the career field. We have one group of folks that looks down their nose at at families like mine that have four kids or more, that choose to homeschool, that, that go to church on a regular basis. So, so that's one segment. And we, we've seen this even in, in today's show, that, that we talked about that kind of mindset. Then there's another mindset that says we're going to create policy that allows for families to flourish. We're, we're going to create policy that allows for moms that are on TenCare in Tennessee to, to be able to provide diapers for their children all the way up to two years at no cost to them. We're going to create tax, uh, tax holidays permanently 
on baby items like car seats, pack and plays, cribs, and the like in Florida. We're going to create policy structure and proposals around our state budgets that would fund and support families. That would allow for a mom to easier, make it easier for her to choose life. That would allow for a mom to have parental leave if she's a state employee. We're going to create tax incentives at a federal level that would allow for families to flourish and help them with the cost of childcare and help them with the cost of groceries and help them put money in their pockets to decide what, what best way it is to spend those dollars. See, those are tax incentives that, that some want to put forward. We're, we're going to, uh, one segment says we're going to put funds, $100 million worth of funds to help support pregnancy centers that are supporting moms facing a difficult situation. You see, you see those two lines of thinking. Which one is pro-family? Which one is pro-human? And so we have folks and policymakers and professors and leaders looking at their constituency and saying, the answer to the, the ills of our society is that you would not be breathing anymore. We have professors and policymakers and leaders of countries saying, you know what we need to do is make sure that, that we keep this population in check. And, and as we keep this population in check, we're going to really target a certain demographic. We're, we're going we're gonna to sterilize those that are in prison. We're going to have doctor-assisted suicide for the disabled and the depressed and certainly the elderly. And then, you, and then, and then that group of folk would, would say they are the pro-family folks. It, it sure doesn't sound pro-family to me. It sure doesn't sound pro-human to me. And then you, you have the other group that I laid out for you that's saying we're going to fund families. We're going to provide for moms. We're going to have a tax structure in place that, that keeps our, our, our budget balanced in the state while also incentivizing these moms and dads and families and, and providing care for them and providing child care, providing school choice. Providing a path for a family to say, you know what, I do want multiple children. The dichotomy is pretty striking. I'll let you decide which one you line up with. We'll talk to you next week.